Welcome investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamotko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Hey, welcome everybody to the Absolute Return Podcast. On today's show, we welcome special guest, Social Leverage founder Howard Lindzen. Social Leverage is a venture capital firm that specializes in early stage and seed stage investments in the software, consumer, and fintech industries. On the show, Howard discusses how he initially got into investing and what is appealing about early stage investing specifically, key lessons learned from its hits and misses within startups, angel investing, and venture capital, what he thinks is in store for NFTs, crypto, and Web3 in the future, his thoughts on the current market environment, and more. So with no further ado, here's our show on venture capital investing with Social Leverage founder Howard Lindzen. Howie, welcome to the show. Uh, Super excited to have you on the podcast today. Uh, How are things going? Things are good. uh, Are we talking like dates or like are we supposed to be non-specific about what time of year or what the markets are doing or what do you... However you want to do it, we can do it. It was a wild swing in the market today, 500 basis points uh, swing. In no, the I'm just talking about like October 2022, <laughs> people need to, like, that's okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. We can provide some uh, context as We're all day. going broke. We're all going to die in the ocean. <laughs> yeah, tough, tough times for... Um, you know, basically all risk assets, but but specifically uh, more so on the riskier side, the, the higher beta growthy type names. But prior to get in, getting into the current market environment, which uh, I'd like to touch on later in the show, I wanted to kick things off just getting uh, a little bit of details about yourself. I know that uh, you're Canadian living in Phoenix, but how did you initially get into investing? I think I was late to it. My dad uh, was a securities attorney. And uh, part of uh, that Canadian, you know, whatever you call that Canadian, Vancouver, penny stock, uh, oil, energy in the 70s kind of markets. And, uh, you know, if you're in Canada and the markets, you're in commodity, you're in energy and materials and commodities. Yeah. So at that board, as a kid, I had none of that interested me. I was into uh, comedy and sports. And getting out of the house, like leaving, um, I sensed craziness in the household. The uh, so anyway, so I moved at a young age to the states. We were I grew up rather born on third base, so you know, middle class, upper middle class, Jewish, uh, Toronto family. Not many cares in the world. Uh, luckily for me, in 1965, being born. So I've had nothing but luck and being born at the right time. And so I feel like it'd be pretty hard to screw that whole thing up. So so to increase my odds of success, I moved to Arizona where the sun shines. And, and um, so, so, yeah, life's been good. As an investor, I think I got the bug. I think I, the true bug was probably during, you know, post-career, like when just I had my first little bit of money in the early 90s. and. Like anybody that shapes your career, there's two things that shapes your career, like your risk appetite, like your childhood, like or some event that happens when you're young or in your teens. And then you're, when you first make your first investment, what's the market like? So for me, the events that shaped how I think about investing was you know, my parents got, you know, I grew up 
wealthy, I guess. And, um, you know, when my parents got divorced when I was in my early 20s, I got, you know, handed taking care of my mom in a certain lump sum of money. And, you know, being in school and worrying about myself and also not knowing anything about the markets and having to, like, make sure your mom doesn't run out of money for whatever. She was probably only 40. Your risk, you know, you, you become, you know, you're in a way the man that you can't lose that money. Otherwise, you'll be supporting her. So, so I had to learn by that. And so I was always just then generally conservative, looked at the world like, oh, God, if I screw this up, I'm going to be taking care of my mom. And the math was never going to work for me because she didn't have enough money. So 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 that shapes your your the way you think of the world. And then the second thing is my first investment was during the go go 90s. Right. I got money. I had started a company I was doing really well and we had capital and I didn't really know the markets that well. But, you know, brokers used to cold call you if they smelled any success. And I got cold call and, and uh, we did well, like it was fun. And, you know, if you learn in a bull market, you really haven't learned much. So, uh, so yeah, that's how I got the bug in a bull market in the 90s. It was like kind of the semiconductor pre-internet boom, the semiconductor healthcare, you know, 50, 50 cents spread on Microsoft. The good old days, you know, when uh, men were men and everybody <laughs> ripped you off. <laughs> Yeah, probably massive commissions from that broker who cold called you, but with that bull market. Yeah, but think about today, they're, they're complaining. You know, I was an investor in Robinhood earlier, and I was like, the joy <laughs> to me was like, who cares? Like, you know, forgetting how carried away everything got. When I started investing, you, if you, Microsoft was 24 by 24.50. So imagine buying on the offer plus commission. Mm -hmm. Stock would have to move 4% for you to break even. Like, just think about it. And we still did it. We still yep. thought we had an edge. And here we are, we can buy 24, 2401, and you think you're getting ripped off. So the world's <laughs> come a long way. <laughs> it's never good enough, is it? <laughs> and, and and so that one cent spread is too much, and Citadel's the devil. <laughs> but, so let's bring back 24 by 2450 spreads where a guy in a bad jacket is making all the money. I don't know. Like, you know, it's just funny. Like, yeah. if you can't laugh at that, like, people are just assholes. People yeah. just don't respect uh, history and wh what people put up with before. So I just luckily look at the world that way and go, people are just, you know, they're never going to be happy. And there's a great thing about the comedian who used to show his penis to women. That was ex extra day when he would talk about, I forget his name, the funny guy. But uh, <laughs> he uh, got... Uh, you know, you can't show your penis, it turns out, to, to women. I'm joking because he should, like, he was an animal about it. But uh, anyways, he had this bit about, uh, you know, we're flying in a plane and people are complaining. Oh, that's and, Louis C.K. Yeah, Louis C.K. is doing yeah. that bit. And I'm like, all right, like, the guy's a psycho, I'm sure. But, like, what a funny bit. Like, <laughs> everything we do is, like, we're all hurtling through space at 400 miles an hour in a chair, whether you're day trading or using your AirPods or you know, yelling about Verizon or whatever we're complaining about that moment. And it's just insanity. Yeah, if your Twitter feed is delayed by five seconds, you got to yell and curse. Uh, but I digress. Reading a bunch of your stuff online and your pro prolific poster, blogger, social media follower, I've heard you describe yourself as a, a trend-based investor. You're always looking for those kind of overarching themes. Now, what resonates with you with respect to identifying and investing in industry trends? So there's a couple 
<clears throat> great quotes that seem to, whenever I, every six months I'll post them on Twitter. And uh, sorry, the gardener's going off in the background here. The, um, you know, one thing that I, that my friend JP Ragswani said to me, he's a really wise guy. And he said, there's no such thing as information overload, only filter failure. So when we, this goes back to the plane hurling through space. Like when we, when I got into the market, we were trading off 20 minute delayed quotes on Yahoo Finance, right? And we thought we were like on top of the world. And so to me, it's, you can, and today I stand as far away from the machine as possible, even though I started stock with. So it's not how close you are to the pipe. Listen, you, you just, unless that's your job and you're, a billionaire, you know, playing that game is just very hard, the line of scrimmage type investing. So, you know, standing as far away from the pipe is how I think you make money. But you better you better have an edge. And my edge is luckily very smart people are out there sharing. And so as long as I follow the very smartest people, I'm ahead of the game and tune out all the all the noise. So and then the second thesis is nature or or in sports, you know, very much you 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 take a picture of uh, if you go online and look at a picture of a great white shark or any kind of large uh, shark. There's a school of pilot fish that swim. You know, I don't know halfway down through the shark and backwards in in a formation and underneath the shark, and they live a pretty good life. That's a pilot fish, and and they are just following the shark. Like not they're not getting in front of the shark, so they get eaten, and they're they're hiding out underneath the shark, so no one's attacking them. Just that picture to me proves that you don't have to be first. But as long as you're near the head of the pack uh, and not too greedy, you can make a lot of money. And then out in the, and cycling the Peloton, if you watch the Tour de France, forgetting the drugs and who's the best. But if you watch the elegance of the Peloton, it's all about conservation of energy. And everybody takes a turn at the pack. And what is it, 33% faster in a pack than you can ride alone? So, you know, find your Peloton, you know, be be respectful of who's breaking the wind and who's leading and the the amount of extra energy they have to exert to take risk and, and, and pave the way. And so if you can manage your expectations and greed around those things, it's pretty easy to be a trend follower. So that's kind of how I put it. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest growing alternative investment solution providers with a suite of institutional caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund, symbol ARB on the TSX, is the world's first SPAC-focused ETF with a diversified portfolio of SPAC and merger arbitrage opportunities in an easy-to-use, low-cost ETF. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF trades under the symbol ARB on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. And then do you have any sectors, would you say, that you won't invest in? Can you describe a little bit more about your approach of where you won't go? That's a good question. Because as I get older, I'm more indexing. And so I guess I should say no, because I do less stock picking as a rule. Just I pick companies for a living, so picking stocks I've never been that good at. But um, so I guess no, to be honest. But if I'm going to buy a stock, it's generally got to be a high growth. It's got to be something that I'm uniquely understanding around a brand or a growth. Otherwise, what's my edge? Like otherwise, I'm going to sell it at the first sign of like a volatility because I don't really understand it. 
but generally it would be an airline which just has so much labor and energy costs where they where you can't control truly the growth or a component company or like that's reliant like if you make something for an iphone i don't care how fast it's growing like apple's gonna you know the scorpion and the and you know if you if you aren't the scorpion then um uh, you know, I try and be in the businesses that control everything. So are you taking like a barbell approach on one end, VC, angel investing on the other end, indexing? Is that like a correct characterization? Yeah, I believe like today I bought the cues a little bit. Like, like I'm not, I can't pick stocks in this environment. Uh, everybody's negative. Uh, there's no way to truly analyze companies in a, in a bear market like this because you just it's been so good for so long that we don't know where all the skeletons are buried. So, you know, I try and do less individual stock thinking. I'm more like, where would I allocate a certain amount of capital? What level? And it's much less stressful. No, no doubt. And, and I've done it for so long and it's so hard to beat the market for any length of time. And what's wrong with eight? If you want to be in the market and make eight to 10%, then that's what you should try and make. And the indexes do that for you. And if you want to try and beat the market, then that's why I moved to venture investing because I felt like there was some alpha there because of my eyes and my ears and my network and my domain experience and my passion and my elbow grease and control of the cap table that I felt at least if I'm going to go down with the ship, I'll have a lot more control with it. So I wanted to dig into your venture investing, angel investing. Now you've invested in Quite a few startups. I was wondering if you could go through some of the hits and misses that that you've learned over the early stage venture investing career you've had. Well, a lot of it is, you know, people think I'm good at it now. So obviously I am. If people say I'm good, I am. No, I mean, part of it is like the humility of like how stupid you learn more from the misses. So if I were look at like all my misses, <clears throat> they all come from like preconceived ideas of what things should be, whether it's valuation or whether it's, you know, the market. So, so I've had so many successes um, that, um, you know, you have to look at the numbers and go, well, maybe it just was such a good market. So we've been in such a good market for most of my, the meat of my investing career. So you take out 99, 2000, you know, um, I've been in a bull market, right? Like, when I graduated from college, the semiconductor was coming into its own and, and you have Microsoft Windows. So we've been in a, a tech boom for the better part of 30 years. So I'm supposed to have done well. So let's let's frame it around that first. Is that, you know, born on third base and then in my investing years, having a couple successes and having some capital and then having a bull market, I was supposed to be successful. I think what defines though, Maybe why I've beaten the market and done so well as a as an investor, and you know even beating the averages over a long period of time is that I was curious and passionate about you know some things that that uh, that uh, gave me an edge. And for me, that was you know for better or for worse, starting investing in the '90s and and seeing those spreads and being on the other end of a phone call from a broker and learning all the 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 good and bad about that and then being a yahoo finance user and the original reddit let's call it or the original twitter and stock twits where if you hung out on the amazon stream in 1998 that's where dan Loeb was mr pink and that's where all the <laughs> that's where all the action was yeah. we thought we were like we thought we, we were the equivalent of meme stock like we thought we were 
we thought the enemy was the hedge funds too in 98. Everybody thinks they invented this. Like the, <laughs> you know, it's so funny about Reddit is like, we're taking down the man. Well, guess what? In 98, 99, we thought we were taking down the man on Yahoo Finance and nobody takes down the man. And I think Goldman and JP Morgan are doing just fine still. Only the man can take down the man, right? Like who took down Lehman? Uh, them not participating in the, uh, in the bailout of long-term capital management sealed their doom later on. You know, the man kills the man, but the, but retail does not kill the man. So it's funny that I've lived through all those things and human behavior doesn't change. But my edge was that I lived, I loved investing and I always hated the man and I always hated media. And so, so technology finally gave idiots like me the chance to build these things on our own and so my edge was knowing what was wrong with the products I was using and having the tech and money available to go try it myself and build the things, solving my own, scratching my own itches, solving my own problems. So with Wall Strip, you know, I grew up in an era of Second City Television in Toronto. So I saw, I was completely, you know, I couldn't believe how funny, like making fun of a news channel was. This is what Second City did uh, back in the 70s. and then. You know, having to endure watching CNBC as my source of news in my early investing career, I hated that. And so I'm like, oh, like that needs to be disrupted. And I couldn't afford Bloomberg. So I was always fascinated with like, how do you build a Bloomberg for everybody else? And then sure enough, YouTube, Twitter, like all these things align where I could go try it myself. And, and Wall Street was my idea to build. You know, when I pitched Fred Wilson, my idea to Fred was like, I'm going to build CNBC on YouTube. And Fred, who was a great investor, was like, yeah, that's actually a good idea. And then with Twitter, it was like, I'm going to build the next Yahoo Finance, you know, using Twitter. And that's where StockTwits came from. You know, with Robinhood, when I saw Robinhood, it was like, oh, my God, finally an E-Trade, you know, uh, the next generation. So were all the things that I had, like, wanted... It wasn't like I was inventing them, but I was just like, I didn't see the future. I was like, this is just a better version of the future. And I think, you know, as long as you have that kind of curiosity and domain experience, uh, technology allows people to like kind of act these things out and participate in them. Yeah, that's a good point with respect to just better versions. If you look at Slack, for example, obviously incredibly successful and got acquired for a, a huge sum, but it was basically just a, a better version of ICQ or AOL Messenger or MSN Messenger and the like. Uh, you did mention a couple startups that that you founded, so not just investor, but also founder on your resume, Wall Strip and StockTwits. Now, from the perspective of a founder, like what advice do you have for startup CEOs just getting going or they're established and looking to raise capital? Ooh, I, I, I mean, that's just a pretty broad subject. I mean, I can only give advice to investors more than founders now. Um, to founders, it's like, does this, you know, we've seen this with crypto. There's a lot of people who are chasing money versus or, or influence over true passion of businesses take 10 to 12 years. Robinhood even took nine years. eToro's on 12 years. StockTouch is 15 years. So there's this myth, I think, or this um, fantasy that maybe it's because of the Zuckerberg movie and, the, and this era of Web 2 where, you know, the cloud came along and you had this perfect storm of Amazon Web Services, the iPhone, um, 0% interest rates, you know, 
those three things combined were like at the same time were like a miracle. Um, and then the social networks gave people the ability to scale. Uh, and the arbitrage was Google and Twitter and Facebook didn't really at the beginning care about monetization. So they, you could arb customer acquisition. You could do customer acquisition basically for free. So we, that era was just a magical thing. Forgetting how smart everybody thinks they're genius. We give too much credit to entrepreneurs and forever will to in this last era, including myself, because they weren't, it wasn't that we were so smart. It was a perfect storm of tech, money, and uh, timing in the world and being in America that you'd almost have to be an idiot, no offense to the people who didn't get rich off Web 2, to not make money. So the, to me, there was always a pressure of, oh my God, if I miss this, I'm a complete idiot. <laughs> so, so I think what founders today have to think about is like, there's no, yeah, the, there's no easy way to get customers anymore unless you understand TikTok, I guess. So, so it's going to be more expensive to get customers. You're not, it's going to cost more to just, you got to build for the iPhone, the Android and the mobile phone. So unless you're like understand blockchain and are building the, to the blockchain, very, it's very expensive to, to start a, a tech company today because of engineers. And it's going to take a long time to get to the goal line. So do you really have this burning desire to do this thing for 10 to 12 years? And so I would put it back to the founder and say, you're just lying to yourself if you don't think it's going to take 10 to 12 years. And generally by like, my job as a good investor is to talk people out of, try and talk not poke holes in their idea, but poke holes in like their expectations of what the the journey is going to be like. And um, we've gone through this this boom where these decacorns and fifty billion dollar companies were born with disregard of the laws and reshaping laws, and 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 that was during a time where the China was open and you could do business in Russia, and those walls, those windows are are shut or those doors are shut. So now we're ending an era of like. We're not in an illiquid market yet, but we're in an era of deglobalization, let's call it. And we're in an era of a more expensive cost of capital. And more important, what no one's talking about, everybody's talking about inflation. And I'm not worried about inflation as it re- regards input pricing, because everybody will adjust. Price, you know, prices will take care of itself. What people are not talking about in the startup world, which is you know, I'm starting to talk about, is the inflation of starting a business. If forever it's been cheap to start a business, we are entering a period where it's never been more expensive to grow a business. So so as, as cheap as it is today to start a company, because you can go build it on the blockchain and do a, a Ethereum ERC-20 contract, and like you can truly build some of the blockchain. But if you're not going to build the blockchain and manage expectations of valuation, which will be lower because you're going to build a much smaller user base, but to go think that you're going to be able to go start an e-commerce company and, and rely on Facebook for growth, that window is closed. So so it is. we are entering one of the most expensive moments in time to start a tech company because once you raise that first capital, it's going to be a grind to get new users. And because everybody's attention is... There's so many great places for your attention already. So I don't think people are factoring how hard that is. So we're trying to hammer home to founders that like, you better really like what you're doing and we're going to come after you to make sure you understand that we're not in this thing for two years because this is a marathon, not a race. So that's my advice to founders. Don't kid yourself. Really, it's okay to work at another company. 
it's okay to it's okay to not perfectly love your job and it's okay to be number 100 employee or 200 employee there's lots to do not everybody can be ceo and founder this podcast is brought to you by accelerate one of canada's leading alternative investment solution providers do you want to hedge your investment portfolio and protect your nest egg from significant drawdowns Look no further than the Accelerate Absolute Return Hedge Fund, a long-short equity ETF that trades under the ticker symbol HEDGE, H-D-G-E, on the TSX. HEDGE, your uncorrelated portfolio diversifier. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. It's a really interesting insight, and I heard some something very similar from uh, CZ, the founder of Binance. He said, if you're going to launch a business... Commit at least 10 years, because that's how long it generally takes to build. And you saw... And I say this, I say this from experience. If my investors had stocked with, and they're great investors and great guys, had said, how? Listen, you're 42 years old. Everybody loves you. You're smart. You're coming off a win. And uh, you have this great idea. But they should have said, but. You know, the way we see this going is you're not going to have scale. You're going to be subscale. You're going to be an ad-based business. And you're going to be battling giants. I mean, that would have been good advice to me. You know, they might not have been able to talk me out of it, but I wouldn't be as aggravated as I am today and mad, you know, passive aggressively mad about the whole thing. Because I don't think I would have started StockTwits if I knew 15 years later I'd be battling trolls and 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 dealing with ad-based business. You know what I mean? And, and subscale is not a fun place to be. Now, why I'm bullish is. Exactly the same thing. Subscale may not be a great place to be if your expectations have been scaled, but subscale is a tremendous place to be if you focus on profitability early and take less money and bootstrap. So it's all about how you start the business, meaning in a world that I think we're going to live in a subscale world, it's just about managing those expectations. Like, you know, what does a cap table look like in a subscale world? It's going to look a lot different than how Uber looked. Now, one big trend that we've seen play out over the past year or two has been Web3. Huge growth area, a lot going on there. Blockchain, crypto, NFTs. What do you think is in store for that space? I know you've blogged a little bit, posted a bit on NFTs. What do you think of them? Yeah, I'm starting a company right now uh, in the vision. You know, I like to think everything as a user and as a potential customer. And what's exciting and infuriating about Web3 or Web2.5 or just, you know, as I like to say, Chrome, it's an extension of the web, right? Like, no matter how successful your Web3 business is, you're probably going to have to buy Google ads or TV ads at some point. So you're <laughs> not really Web3. Yeah. If you grow big enough, you're still going to be, Google's still buying television ads, you know, 20 years later. So, um, so the, I'm just, fascinated finally remember i'm 57 and i'm an old curmudgeon and uh i don't know how to type well and i don't know how to you know hook up a printer to the you know to my desktop so you know i'm still that guy like a hedge fund you know tapper of my of my keyboard so i love the term web3 because web2 is how i made all my money so i believe in in a Web3, but I'm, I'm so mad, you know, these false, like we live in a world where Apple and Schwab are my new villain, you know, and I love Apple because we're, we're on out and, and Microsoft. They're just, I can't believe how we've let these guys dominate us. 
not because the products aren't, aren't necessarily the best. And I don't think Microsoft's are the best, but they've done a good job of acquiring and, and uh, being Microsoft. But Apple's are, 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 are pretty much the best for consumers. But Schwab's are the worst. Uh, I think that, and, and they've never been a more dominating control of the pipe. So I, I really worry about those companies and how much control they have over us. So what makes me excited about Web3 is trying to build a business and company that doesn't ever have to cross paths with Apple. Like to, re, to me, the art of the next generation is no one's going to be able to deal with Apple Schwab and Google and Microsoft. So I got to avoid getting into that trap. So I want to find businesses to me that are capped right and thought through right that could be successful without relying on any of those. That's what Web3 means to me. And what Web3 has been so far is like, how do we get rid of Visa and Stripe? And I'm like, man, if you're if you're trying to do a startup that's trying to go around Visa, like or is worried about the 2% that Visa and Stripe are charging, then I don't trust your instincts as a founder. Like that's the wrong mission, really. The real problem like we have is how do I build a business without 20 engineers and designers who are worried about what their lunch is and their benefits are and making 350 a year? That was web two. Web three to me is how do I lightly build code and one website or one app on the web that allows people to have delight and, and utility that they want to be part of something. And that also means venture capital. How do I get rid of the thing that you needed the most in a Web 2 era, which was venture capital? So part of the art of Web 3, which is really disappointing to see even the smartest people take VC money, is aren't we supposed to do Web 3 without venture capital? If we're going to do Web 3 without Visa and MasterCard, I'd rather be able to rely on Visa, MasterCard, and Stripe than venture capitalists. And so I think everybody's like got the wrong enemy. and. The enemy is is burn in Web3. The enemy is not the 2% uh, fees. The enemy is churn and burn. The, so when I look and think of Web3, churn is a, is a big issue. Meaning, if I run the best newsletter in the world and I'm hooked up to Stripe, um, Stripe isn't my problem. You know what the problem is? Stripe's so good, it's not the 2% they charge. It's that someone can disconnect from Stripe just because of something I say. Right. Or or just one bad idea or they're having a bad week and they their wife says, clean up all your subscription. And so what really hurts Web 2 is how good it is. Like it's so easy to hook up, but it's also so easy to unhook. Okay. So churn is a huge thing for a small independent newsletter writer, whether you're Substack or or, you know, writing investment newsletters, because people can just come back to you. And we know that for a fact, people just don't come back, right? Like, and, and it's frustrating for a, someone to try and plan their small business to have churn. So Web3 allows you to literally say, here's how my business is going to work. You're going to pay a lifetime membership, or you're going to pay this much, and you're going to pay more. But you can, And you can leave, but you got to come through the front door to leave. Meaning, I'm going to charge you $1,000 for a lifetime membership. And here's my terms. And you're going to pay a thousand bucks. And if you want to leave, stand in line because there's other people that will pay this or some price of that. But I'm only going to have 500 members. And when you leave, I'm going to collect a 10%, you know, for all my headache, right? Not from you, but from the buyer. So, so I think this whole idea of like knowing who your customer is. And so like 
you know, it's kind of a country club meets um, a subscription business. You're taking all those features that made the physical country club or the physical club hard to do, real estate and all that, and actually making money off the transfer of, of title to another member. And you can plan your business because you don't have to have churn. So the two best web one, web two businesses are American Express Platinum or, you know, membership has its benefits and AAA, right? AAA was born at a time when there was no Google. So their name is AAA because that was how you got to the front of the phone book. Like (laughs) if you wanted to advertise, they had a double A, you know, double A auto club, you had to have AAA. And so, and they built this great membership with great services and guess what? There's no supply limitation. If you want AAA, you can sign up. But they also are constantly worried about churn, right? Their whole their whole business is based on like how many people churn. And same thing with Amex Platinum. If you pay a seven fifty a year, you can have Amex Platinum, whatever. And they don't care how many members there are because they'll just keep selling Amex Platinum. I care as a user because I don't understand what the benefits are. Like I know there's tons, but it doesn't really work for me because everybody has different needs. So I keep canceling both. And in the in a web three world, everybody can offer a platinum service for their subscription, but they got to cap the supply. And and that goes back to managing expectations in web three. I can build a perfect subscription business in a web three world that takes Ethereum, that takes cash, you know, using all different types of you know chain cross-link products. And I my customers can be anywhere in the world, can use any kind of currency. But what I have to manage is my own greed and not offer it to everybody. And so I think what Web3 is solving, churn and burn, burn being have lower burn, is not enough. Like the people that are doing Web3 for the right reason, which is to manage churn and to manage burn, are going to be very happy. If they do it for the right reasons, I think Web3 is phenomenal. But so far, what we've seen is just a giant gold rush and a lot of unregulated scams. And that's not for me. Like, you know, I just... I'm too old and I've seen it too many times before. And, you know, it's been it's been a bit of a headache. But the next thing coming is going to be great because people that really want to build, like when I see that I can copy and paste code from someone else's ERs, like the way I can copy and paste someone like FTX's token, I can see how they made it. I can copy and paste the code. I can create my own loyalty rewards program, just change a few numbers and be live. That is incredible. But with great power comes great responsibility. And I think a lot of people are over-promising and under-delivering. And that's that's not good. That's a really interesting perspective of, of Web3. One, one, one thing that you mentioned earlier was Fred Wilson being an investor in Wall Strip. How much has your personal investment style been influenced by him? I mean... Very little other than, you know, more about his lifestyle and his, his uh, what would I say, his mentorship around, sorry, his, his, his way about he, the way he runs his life, like the, the principles that he stands up, you know, for, which is just more like, you can't be everywhere in all times. And, and it's hard to copy Fred because he's an MIT guy and he, and he grew up differently than most he was an army brat like so he saw the world like if you look at what makes a good investor obviously travel um, being exposed to a lot of things you know i don't know if it's speaking other languages but it's travel it's curiosity uh, i don't think it matters where you went to school but it probably sure helps that you went to mit and then you know your your timing so i mean it's very hard to 
you know, they, they had the same thing in sports where they frame someone the next Michael Jordan. Well, I'm guessing everybody wants to be the next A16Z or maybe Union Square. But like, that's not the way I think it works. I think you can only pull out where the next Warren Buffett. I think you can only like dra- or draft behind certain facets because I went to ASU. I'm not, I don't think like an MIT person. I can't code. So there's nothing I can take from Fred that would make me a good investor. Why Fred? I'm more impressed that Fred's smart enough to invest in me. Because basically by investing in me, he's realizing that the Larry David of investing is a good strategy. He's like the dumbest guy in the room is a way to invest. So so it's really more a testament to him than me. Like, of course, I want to copy as much about Fred as I can. How do you copy a guy who's willing to invest in me? Right? If he's willing to invest in me and all these pensions aren't willing to invest in me, then no one can copy Fred because the pension should be copying Fred, not me. That's so it's like everybody's asking the wrong question. Like, you know, the fact that Fred invested in me means that everybody should invest in me. <laughs> Not the other way around. Yeah, that's a good point. And Howard, I know you got to run right away. One last question, fun question before you jump. What's your favorite productivity hack? What keeps you so active? I think my product, favorite productivity hack is that I have no idea how to be productive. And I think my favorite productivity hack is that I and my own assistant mm. in that I manage my own calendar and people are gasped. Like when I get an email from someone who copies in there, I cringe and copies in their assistant. I get it. People, <laughs> some people are better with an assistant, yeah. but Jesus with Google calendar and like uh, email and text, I don't know. So I think my favorite productivity hack is, is that I'm lucky enough to not have one. There you go. I agree with that sentiment. And Howard, thanks so much for coming on the show, sharing your wisdom, your ideas, uh, investments, all good stuff. Thank you so much. Uh, chat soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Julian. Thanks, people. Take care. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.